In The Dark Knight Rises, Batman must face off against his most strong opponent of the trilogy, Bane, to save the people of Gotham. He studies his background and his fighting style, but he doesn't learn enough. In their first confrontation, he's nowhere near ready for his enemy. And after toying with Batman for a bit, Bane says in that funny voice that he has in that movie, you fight like a young man with nothing held back. Admirable but mistaken. In Captain America Civil War, Cap and Iron Man end up in a battle against each other. Iron Man's AI assistant Friday implores Tony Stark at one point saying, you can't beat him hand to hand. And so the solve is to scan Cap's fighting style with some technology mumbo jumbo and then Iron Man is able to gain the upper hand in the melee at least for a little while. The Apostle Paul was a man who frequently found himself in spiritual brawls, not because he was looking to hurt anybody, of course not, he was on a mission of mercy, but he was so often under attack and in the middle of a serious altercation that eventually he described his entire life of faith as what? Fighting the good fight. He came to the end, he says, hey, I ran my race, you know what, it's less like, it's like a death race, I have fought the good fight. Already in the book of Acts, we've seen him a few times in danger or in disagreement with the enemies of the gospel. But tonight, we're going to see a spiritual street fight from start to finish. From it, we can learn about how we can carry ourselves as ministers of grace, bringing the gospel to a world that might respond with aggression. And we'll find that even when it seems like God's enemies get the upper hand, the Lord still wins, his kingdom still advances, and we are still the victors. In the last set of verses, Paul and Barnabas had gone into Asia Minor, known today as Turkey, and they preached the good news to a full synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. Some had believed, and others, we're told, wanted to hear more, and so they invited the two apostles back to speak again the following Sabbath. And so we pick back up in verse 44. We read, the following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Now, we can be quite confident that Paul and Barnabas weren't just sitting around all week. That wasn't their style. Verse 42 tells us that many already had believed what were being taught after their first sermon. And now as the next Saturday rolls around, Paul and Barnabas return, but they don't find just a little Jewish congregation. They find the entire city just about there to hear what they had to say. This would have been thousands of people. We're not exactly sure what the population was uh, of Antioch at the time. Uh, at one point, they had a population of 100,000 people. And so this would have been thousands of people. They came, we're told, to hear the word of the Lord. That is significant. They didn't come to be entertained. They didn't come to see some gimmick. They weren't hoping to catch a glimpse of some celebrity. Their hearts had been sparked by the word of God, and they were interested in hearing more. How had all these people heard about this meeting? Well, we know that there were God-fearers in the audience the previous week. Those were Gentiles who were seeking the God of Israel, and they were allowed to attend synagogue, even though they weren't full proselytes. Men like Cornelius in the book of Acts are called God-fearers. You know, he wasn't going to go through the rite of circumcision. He wasn't a full-blown you know, proselyte in the... Levitical sense, the legal sense as far as the Jews were concerned, but they were God-fearers, Gentiles who were interested in the God of Israel and therefore allowed to attend. Well, they had heard Paul's sermon the previous week, 
And uh, they, no doubt, had gone into their Gentile communities with changed lives, full of joy, telling people that there was a true and living God who had sent two heralds to the city to share a message of hope. And no doubt, Paul and Barnabas had gone through the city during the week as heralds. These were not the kind of guys who just worked one hour a week. In fact, uh, Paul worked, as far as we can tell from the New Testament, just round the clock, either in the ministry or working as a tent maker to support the ministry or working to support other people's needs. How uh, we think about ministry is important. Faithful ministry, faithful evangelism prioritizes the word of God over feelings and over trends and over pop culture, over entertainment, the way we outreach, the way that we minister in the world, in the city we find ourselves in, it should be excellent and it should be contemporary, it should be as well crafted as we can, but it's God's word that has power. You know, that's what is going to make the difference. That is the power of God unto salvation and we need to believe that. We need to believe that God's word actually has power and actually matters, can actually change people's lives. I'm reading a biography on Winston Churchill and many uh, consider him to be the father of the tank. And there in World War I, he was suggesting, hey, we should use these armored vehicles with treads and they can go over the trenches and we're gonna be able to gain all sorts of ground in this war where no one can gain any ground. And the people kind of looked at his plan and they said, you know, the, the powers that be said, yeah, that's not gonna work, that's some crazy idea. Now, of course, history has proven who was right and who was wrong. Uh, they didn't believe in the power of the tank, and yet it was the deciding factor in the next war in many ways, or it certainly was the deciding factor in a trench warfare situation. And so we need to believe in the power of God. We read, as the Bible says, here's what the Bible is capable of, here's what the scriptures are capable of, it is the power of God to salvation, but... It seems that frequently Christians are then quick to say, but what we really need is a book about the Bible, or we need a program that kind of sneaks the Bible in, or we need you know, a method that gets people excited to come to church, and then we can talk to them about Jesus. That's boring after all. And so we just need to believe that the Bible is what it says it is, and that it's powerful, and that it can make a difference, uh, not just 2,000 years ago, but still today. As a quick application, if you ever find yourself in a situation where a bunch of people are listening to you, you know, they showed up thinking they were gonna have a meeting in a synagogue, but all of a sudden the whole town was there and a bunch of people were there to hear them. If you find yourself in a situation where people are listening to you, find a way to give them the word of God. Now, that doesn't mean you have to recite an entire book of the Bible or have a master's degree in theology or anything like that, but give them God's word because God's word never returns void. This is one of our favorite things about watching old clips of you know, Billy Graham when he was being interviewed. Not necessarily, not certainly not when he was preaching, you know, but when he was being interviewed by like a secular news anchor. And just try to time how long it takes him to get to the gospel. No matter what they ask him about, he takes just a quick left turn into the gospel. You know, hey, what do you think about this? What I think is that you need to get saved. And all of a sudden he's talking about you know, Christ and the cross and the resurrection. And he's just a great, you know, uh, concentrated example of whenever he had an audience, he thought, well, I need to give these people the word of God so that their lives can be impacted. Verse 45 says, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. They were not only slandering Paul, but the language indicates they were also blaspheming. Why? 
Well, they didn't like that all these people showed up to hear what he might have to say. Envy and jealousy are so destructive to our lives and to our communities. The Proverbs tell us that envy rots the bones. That's a pretty powerful image. James tells us that where there's jealousy, you will find disorder and every kind of vile practice. And it's interesting, there's a terrible unreasonableness about envy. The Jews sort of live it out for us here in this text. They didn't care about Gentiles. I mean, they'd be happy if all of these Gentiles were just wiped from the face of the earth one day. Gentiles were dogs. They were off-scouring. They weren't, you know, actively trying to recruit Gentiles to become synagogue members or anything like that. But look how many there were. There's so many of them, and that makes us feel self-conscious. That makes us feel jealous. If you've been around small children, you've seen this type of sin doing its thing all the time. Little ones happily playing, and then their brother comes to the toy chest, pulls out some little plaything that the first child didn't care less about five seconds ago, and now it's war. And now, you know, that is, that is it. That is the pearl of great price. And if I don't get that from my brother, it's the end of the world, right? And that's just envy. The truth is envy lurks at our door, not just as little toddlers, it lurks at our door right now, day and night. Social media is an envy petri dish. We wanna be careful when we uh, foray onto social media or onto the internet to just guard against envy. You know, right now, people are going out and you'll see them out today and they'll be wearing personal protective equipment, right? They're going out wearing masks and those sorts of things. And particularly if you were to go to a hospital or a place where sick people are, those people are wearing like layers and layers of protective equipment, right? Makes sense. Um, And so when we wade into the bog of social media, get some personal spiritual protective equipment on and don't let envy get a foothold. So the Jews start insulting and slandering Paul. Luckily, Paul was a man of honor and integrity. Their accusations weren't gonna stick to him. He wasn't a charlatan, he wasn't greedy, he wasn't a liar. Uh, He didn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. He wasn't trying to get a following for himself. The Bible uses a term for this sort of character, and it's to be above reproach. This is an idea that comes up a lot in Paul's letters, but David also speaks about it in Psalm 101. We can't keep people from slandering us, but we can keep those slanders from being true, right? So if somebody came and said, Paul, this guy's just in it for the money, he could like smile and say, what, are you kidding me? (laughs) I don't have anything, Uh, All I have is the scars from people attacking me when I was in Arabia. And then as he goes through, you know, we talked about this last time when he was in Cyprus. It's possible that uh, he was very seriously flogged. And so uh, the slanders weren't going to stick because they weren't true because Paul was an upright man who lived above reproach. At the same time, we also can't always keep people from contradicting what we preach about Jesus Christ. Now, this one's a little bit more thorny because... It's important that we speak the truth and that we speak, and we want to be right and the things that we believe are right. The truth is anything that you say can be contradicted by someone who doesn't want to believe. And I can prove that because that's why there's still a flat earth society. And I apologize if there's any flat earthers in here tonight or any watching online, but the earth is round and we know it's round (laughs) and it's clear that it's round, right? And yet, there are still multiple flat earth societies that do their thing and make videos and post articles and things like that. And so that shows us that anything can be contradicted, 
right? It doesn't mean that the contradiction is valid or it doesn't mean that the contradiction you know, can't be answered, but what did Paul do when they hit him with these slanders and contradictions? Verse 46, Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first since you reject it and judge yourselves worthy of etern- unworthy excuse me, of eternal life. We are turning to the Gentiles. And so one of the things we learn here about this sort of spiritual street fight is that Paul and Barnabas didn't say, okay, well, we're gonna have a symposium proving our points. We're gonna have a debate for hours and hours on end, arguing with these guys about these contradictions they've made. It's not always about arguing proofs and logic. The Jews weren't fighting because they didn't have proper evidence, right? It's not that they didn't understand. We've already been told this was a heart issue. They were jealous, they weren't uninformed. And so in this situation, the Holy Spirit leading Paul said, here's what you need to do. You're gonna pivot here, and this is what you're gonna say, and we're gonna move forward. As opposed to Stephen, we remember Stephen there with the synagogue of the freedmen, it talked about how he debated with them, and and he spoke with them, and they went back and forth, and and so there's a place for that, of course, and and, and we're not saying that there's no place for apologetics or, or argumentation, you know, in the you know, more official sense, but it's not always about proofs and logic. Listen, biblical Christianity has great reasons, it has great evidence, it has great logic, it has great wisdom. We don't shy away from any of that because it's true. And because it's true, we don't have to be afraid of people asking questions. One of the, you know, telltale signs of a cult is that they don't want you to ask any questions. You know, if you're teaching people the truth, you shouldn't be afraid of questions, genuine questions coming up. But when people start saying, well, you can't question what the leader says, or you can't question what the book says, or you don't even ask, we got a problem. Because if you're telling me what's true, you shouldn't be afraid to investigate and ask questions. So it's not that we're, you know, never answer questions, or we never get into reasons and apologetics and evidence and logic and all of that. But sometimes our ministry isn't about proving, it's just about preaching. And in this scene, Paul and Barnabas are fully in just a preaching mode. It would do no good in this particular situation for Paul to start a long lecture about the reliability of the Isaiah scroll or a 50-point seminar proving logically that Christ was Messiah. It wasn't an issue of logic. It was an issue of heart. It was an issue of sin. When Nicodemus, the Pharisee, came to Jesus by night, what do we see there? We see a man wrestling with a problem in his mind, right? He was earnest. He came to Jesus and he says, hey, I... I don't get what's happening here. I have some questions. And Jesus didn't say, I don't care about your questions. What did Jesus do? He reasoned with him and and preached to him and explained to him and brought him along. And by the end of the gospels, what do we see? Nicodemus has settled those questions in his mind. He's convinced. He's there with Joseph of Arimathea, these two men anointing the body of Jesus for burial. A beautiful image. So he came to Jesus wrestling with a real, genuine, earnest question in the mind and the Lord had answers for him. In our fight analogy here, this isn't a fencing match where things are controlled and regulated and very dignified. For certain moves, certain scores, certain points, you did this, so I did that. That's not what's happening here. Paul and Barnabas are figuratively being mugged. They thought they were invited to a friendly discussion. Hey, why don't you come and and talk to us about the Messiah? And when they got there, you know, because of what was going on, it was like they were getting mugged. 
and assaulted by these Jews who were envious and jealous. But Paul and Barnabas don't shrink in that situation. They responded with boldness. They don't counter with a defense of themselves. They don't respond in kind, slandering back to the Jews. They share a hard truth that these people are in sin. They've heard the gospel, they are standing against the gospel, and therefore there's really nothing left for them to talk about. If you wanna keep talking to us about Jesus Christ, you're gonna have to deal with the fact that you are blaspheming Jesus Christ first, and as far as we are concerned in this situation, that's it, that's all we have to say. Boldness was a characteristic that the first church was concerned about. It's something that they prayed for. It's something that described the way they lived. What does it mean? Boldness in the Christian sense means to speak in an honest and straightforward way without fear. It doesn't mean going around without tact and not filtering anything. That's just being a jerk. That's not being bold. Being bold in a biblical sense means being willing to say what needs to be said even when it's difficult to say, but to say it with love and to say it in truth. As ambassadors for Christ, sometimes we have to deliver difficult messages. Sometimes we need to lovingly but honestly just tell people you are in sin and that's the deal. That's the issue and you need to settle that sin issue with Jesus Christ before we talk about any of this other stuff. Like our fellows here, we should embrace the boldness of the spirit and not shrink in those moments. Now, after the attack from the Jews, Paul and Barnabas counter with a powerful set of statements. First, why was it necessary for the word of God to be spoken to the Jews first? We must never forget that the physical descendants of Abraham through Isaac were and are God's chosen people. Nothing has changed about that. The Jews are still God's chosen people. In God's order of things, it was the Jew first and then the rest of the world. One reason is because whether Israel would or would not receive the Messiah would determine when the earthly kingdom was going to be established. So Jesus came, and we, and, you know, we see there in the Gospels, he offered the kingdom to Israel, right? And we would say that was a genuine offer. He wasn't pulling their leg. He wasn't pulling a fast one. It didn't work out this way, but had the people of Israel represented by the leadership of Israel, the Sanhedrin and the uh, Philistines and the Pharisees and all those people, had they accepted and said, yeah, you're the Messiah, we recognize you, we worship you, we honor you. We don't know how God would have worked out his plan, but that offer was genuine. And so the message came to Israel first and said, are you gonna receive your Messiah? No, okay, then we have to make some adjustments here to the timeline of God's plan. And so that's one practical reason why the message had to go to the Jew first. Jesus said in Mark 7, the Lord had to come to the house of Israel first, and then he sent out his people in the book of Acts. He said, hey, first you're gonna go to Jerusalem, and then you're gonna go to Judea, and then from there you're gonna go out. And so there is an order of things. God explained that as an outpouring of his love, the Jews would be a forever special people in his plan. This has been the case from the beginning of them being a nation. There, when he brought them out of Egypt, and he said, okay, you're not just a family anymore, I'm making you into a nation. He explained that there was going to be a forever plan and that they would have a forever place as a nation, an ethnic descendants of Abraham through Isaac. Even today, the Jews are God's chosen people. Now, within the church, when it comes to salvation, we're told in the New Testament, when it comes to salvation, there is no Jew or Greek, there's no slave nor free, it even says there's no male or female. That's not, you know, 
California curriculum slipping into the Bible. I mean, the, so when it comes to salvation, it's just about you as an individual being saved or not being saved. But when it comes to God's plan for the nation of Israel, that continues. He still has a plan for ethnic, actual Jews, a plan that we recognize as being on hold right now during the church age, but will engage once again when the church is removed in the rapture. Second, we read, since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. So they didn't get offended and hurl personal insults at these guys. They stayed on balance and said, listen, what you're actually doing is pushing away God's offer of everlasting life. And the word there says they're forcefully pushing it away. It was something that was given to them, offered to them, and they pushed it away. You've heard of people acting as their own attorneys in a trial. Paul said, in this case, you guys are acting as your own judge. They were brought before the court of heaven. They said, excuse me, Lord, hang on a second. We're guilty, we just decided. That's a sad image, but Paul said, hey, that's what you guys are doing. They had decisively rejected God's mercy and justification. This morning at the men's study, we talked about how uh, back in 1833, there was an individual uh, he was uh, a prisoner, and he was going to hang for his crimes, and because he had well-connected friends, they lobbied President Andrew Jackson, Jackson, who gave him a pardon, and he refused the pardon. We don't know why, but he did, and then the, the court system said, are you allowed to do that? And the Supreme Court of the United States said, yeah, you're allowed to refuse a pardon. We can't force a pardon on you. And so George Wilson was his name. He swung for his crimes. Even though he had a full pardon from the President of the United States sent to him, offered to him, he said no. And so effectively, this is what the Jews are doing here, and Paul's trying to make that clear to them. When he says they were unworthy of eternal life, it doesn't mean that they didn't live up to some standard and thereby miss the mark. I mean, there's none righteous, no, not one, right? None of us are worthy. Nobody in the crowd, whether they had converted or not, was worthy of eternal life in that sense. It is God who makes us worthy, the Bible says. Jesus said those who believe him and follow him and obey him are worthy of him, right? So he says, listen, you have decided, no, we don't, we don't want that, we don't need that, we would like to reject God's offer, that's not fitting for us. Verse 47, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the end of the earth. Paul's not trying to sucker punch his fellow Israelites here. He's not saying this out of spite. To be sure, this is a tense situation and some hard things are being exchanged. But we remember Paul's undying love for the Jewish people. I mean, he said outright, I, if I had the chance to be accursed and sent to hell for the rest of eternity, but the Jews would be saved, I would do it. Now I believe him. And he loved the Jewish people. He had an undying love for them despite the abuses that they subjected him to. But despite how much he wished they would be convinced and converted, he was faithful to follow the orders that had been given to him by his king. King Jesus had said, it's time for you to go to the Gentiles, and he obeyed. Paul said, God has commanded us, we're trying to help you, but now that offer is passing by. He quotes from Isaiah 49, which speaks of the Messiah being sent as a light to the world. And so Paul applies it to the work of the church. We are Christ's body, after all. We continue his work as his body now that he is in heaven. As individuals, we want to be sure we are participating in that work. That's the command that's gone out, that we would be light. And so we want to be participants as Wyatt Earp says in the classic movie Tombstone, the fight's commenced, get to fighting or get away. 
great moment. The work can be a struggle, to be sure, but it is the highest endeavor to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. You know, you hear stories of treasure hunters searching the farthest corners of the world, the deepest parts of the ocean, hoping to find gold or riches. You never hear the reverse. Treasure hunters taking treasure all over the globe and leaving them. But that's exactly where, uh, what we get to be a part of as we continue Christ's work. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. In the Bible, when people had their lives changed by God, the response is instantaneous praise. What a great thing that right from the beginning, even if someone doesn't know the fine points of doctrine or doesn't know what their spiritual gifts are or doesn't know what God's call in their life is, what can they still do? They can still worship. They can still praise right from the beginning. They are immediately able to give full-throated thanks and adoration and rejoicing to God. It's like a baby. When a baby is born, the first thing it can do is what? Breathe and cry. That's great. That baby can't walk. It can't talk. Some cases, it can't even open its eyes, but it can breathe. And in the same sense, when God changes a life, right from the very beginning, we can praise. We can worship. We can rejoice in our Lord. And so, we want to be people who continue to fan the flame of worship in our lives and in our church. We should be a group of people who are quick to rejoice in praise and not let that fire die. Not like, well, when I was a young Christian, then I really worshiped the Lord. I really poured out my worship to God. We should, in fact, be piling fuel on that flame all the time. But now we come to the big bag second half of verse 48. All who had been appointed to eternal life believed. da na na Alexander McLaren wrote, the din of many a theological battle has raged around these words. Too true. Those who hold to a Calvinistic interpretation of scripture say this text proves that God does in fact choose some for salvation, thereby choosing others for damnation. Uh, to be fair, uh, many who hold to a Calvinistic interpretation of scripture will say, well, God chooses some for salvation. He doesn't choose the others for damnation. He just lets them be. There's two answers in life, yes and no. If there's a different answer, it's always no, right? If you say, are you going to do X? Yes, no, and any other answer is no. So we're not gonna let them wiggle out of that one. But this is a proof text for some in the Reformed tradition. We reject the idea that God does not give mankind a genuine free will to respond to the gospel. So what do we do with this verse? Well, let's look at it at three different levels briefly. First, the grammatical level. The Greek word for appointed here is used eight times in the New Testament. It comes to us via a variety of different English words, such as appointed, ordained, set, determined. Even the word addicted is using, uh, used once. And so some scholars suggest that the reading should be more like this, as many as have been prepared for eternal life believed. Now, arguments like that can be useful or helpful, but they really shouldn't be the thing we run to. Because the grammatical argument, though it can have value, if you notice, we'll always come to the conclusion that these words say what I want them to say and they miraculously don't say what I don't want them to say. Now, I've never been reading in a commentary written by a conservative, reformed Bible scholar that you know, has been talking to me all about God's meticulous determination and God's sovereignty, forcing some people to choose to be saved and forcing others to not choose to be saved. And then they get to here and they say, huh, I found a Greek word, never mind. Right? There's always a way to do gymnastics around some of these grammar things. 
And so it's worth studying, it's good to know, but we should be wary of doctrines that are built on specific renderings of Greek or Hebrew words. So let's go a level up and evaluate this phrase looking at biblical harmony. Does the Bible harmonize if this phrase means God appointed some to salvation and some to damnation? Well, again, the answer is no. Jesus says very clearly in Revelation 21, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. God is not willing that any should perish, and he will give life to anyone who repents. And so rather than mangle a multitude of passages and verses in order to justify a certain doctrinal position in Acts 1348, we should take the whole of what has been revealed, weighed against the character and the nature of God. That's how you find harmony in the scriptures. We look at a passage like the parable of the servants, right? The servant who chose not to obey his master was appointed for destruction after he refused to obey and repent, not before. He had as free a choice and chance as the other two servants, but he chose poorly. The Bible clearly teaches that men have a free choice to receive or reject salvation by grace through faith. God does not predetermine who will believe and who will not believe. Instead, through what theologians refer to as prevenient grace, God frees the will of human beings so that they are able to then respond to the gospel one way or another. And then there's a third level. We saw grammatical, we looked briefly at biblical. Now we should look at the situational. What's the context? Well, there's obviously a juxtaposition here. Luke uses even some of the same words about eternal life. The Jews had clearly, willfully refused the offer of eternal life. It was their choice. Paul said, you're the ones pushing this away. And now we see some of the Gentiles willfully receiving it. Now, these particular Jews who were so confident that they were the chosen ones are being shown that they aren't chosen instead of the Gentiles for salvation, but that salvation is for everyone. The message may have come to them first, but their assumption that they were foreordained because they were children of Abraham is just wrong. And so it is a difficult phrase given to us by Dr. Luke, but not an unsolvable one and not one that should trouble us. Verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the prominent God-fearing women and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. From one vantage point, it seems like the apostles were knocked out of the ring. Uh, sumo wrestlers, they're in a little circle, right? And if, they, if you push your opponent out, you know, they, they lose a point. I don't know, I don't watch sumo wrestling, but something's bad if they get knocked out of the ring. And so the opponents here, from one vantage point, knocked them out of the ring. They weren't just run out of town, they were run out of the district. And yet we see that even when God's people are hit, the Lord still wins, the word still spread, the gospel cannot be contained, not by persecution, not by anger, not by our own imperfections. It spread because the power of the Holy Spirit was working, but also because each of these individual Jews and Gentiles who did believe not only became Christians that day, they also immediately became missionaries. You know, in the book of Acts, there wasn't a difference. Just like Paul and Barnabas, they too would go down their roads full of joy, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's uh, how the, God, the Holy Spirit, was able to spread the gospel throughout the region. Meanwhile, the apostles were headed elsewhere. How fast things can change, right? A few verses ago, they were in Cyprus working miracles as the governor of the whole island joyfully accepted Christ in astonished awe. And now the local officials are running them out on a rail. We can't predict the future, so we should make the most of any spiritual opportunities that are before us now. Verse 51, but Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium. 
For the time being, the fight in Antioch was over. They'd be back, but for now, they didn't sue to stay. They didn't try to manipulate the people the way the Jews had. In this spiritual war, this wasn't the hill to die on, and so they moved on. Verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. What an amazing end to this altercation. You know, on the human scorecard, the enemies of the gospels had won. And we got rid of those guys. But when the bell rang, the Christians were the victors. Facing persecution, having been stripped of the apostles, they had no Bible, they had no anything, and yet the infant church there in the city was still full of joy and full of the Holy Spirit. And of course, we know that that was more than enough for them to not only survive, but thrive. And they did. Don't get me wrong, it would have been a hard start. How can you replace Paul and Barnabas? But even with what little they had, they were vibrant and growing and able to take up the fight themselves, rejoicing as they went. We don't head out these doors tonight looking for a fight. Like Paul, we're on a mission of mercy. We're doctors without borders. We're not Blackwater, right? There's, there's, when we're going out there, we're going out there to do good and to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. But when the enemy brings a fight to us, we can respond like these believers who came before us with grace, truth, boldness, and mercy. And we can trust that we're already more than conquerors because of the power of Jesus Christ and God the Holy Spirit working in us. Let's pray.